0: Hello, I'm David Kern.
1: And I'm Heidi White.
0: And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. If you're listening to this, we can assume safely, I believe, that you are an incurable reader. We are here to discuss Ernest Hemingway's great novel, The Sun Also Rises. We're going to talk chapters 13 through 16, which means we are going to be talking about bullfighting. Heidi and Tim. First of all, what is the most experience you have ever had with a large animal of the cow variety.
1: <laughs> Tim, please go first. Oh, actually, I'll go first, and then you can <laughs> sound really cool. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm gonna say my biggest experience with a animal of the I guess that's that's bovine species. Yes, is I walk by them on a daily basis when I go for a jog. So that's my greatest So you, so you jog by them then? Well, no, I walk by them. And then once I'm past them, I start jogging. Uh, Are you worried you're going to like
0: long. spook them by your quick movements?
1: Yeah. And then and that's they'll why stampede you me.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, right. No, I got it. No,
1: yeah. I, they're just on the walking part of the run. Oh, okay.
0: Know? Okay. You, sure. have a, you have a strategy. I got it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Tim, yeah. what about you? Bovine experiences. I used to live on a cattle farm for about okay. a year. Yeah. Totally win. Year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is cool. And I'll, I'll tell a quick story. I'm
1: crinkling up my eyes at you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is, by the way, this is going to be a podcast about Lady Brett, is it not? I mean, yes, bullfighting, but we got to- I
1: have so many questions for you guys, but go on.
2: I had just gotten a dog, an Australian Shepherd border collie mix, and he was the love of my life. And they are herding dogs. Like
0: I believe we've heard from him before, heard about him before. Yeah, because he's
2: he's in heaven and he earned his way there. This is a What un- was his name? Don Dawkins, seventh son of a seventh son of Daryl Dawkins, featuring armored saint as Bruce Dickinson. He was a black. Got it.
0: Yeah, man. yeah. Total um, makes totally makes sense. And that was actually
2: his name with Like the vet and everything. Okay. I wake up one morning and this is a 300 acre cattle farm. I look outside and on the front lawn of the farmhouse where I'm living is a small calf, small. I mean, it still weighs 800 pounds probably. And I think to myself, oh my gosh, there's a calf. It's gotten out of the pen. This is a great opportunity to test Don's abilities as a herding animal let's go see what happens. And this is a terrible idea. So we walk out, we walk down, the calf is lowing in the, in like the front grass and Don sees the calf and he is like through the roof. He is so excited. So my plan is Don and I walk the calf down the fence line to the open gate. The calf turns into the open gate. We close the open gate. We secure it and everybody's happy. So. We start doing this, Don, my dog, walking behind the calf, the calf looking at Don, feeling a little bit anxious, Don feeling like a little bit excited about what's happening, increasing his pace, thus the calf increasing his pace, Don increasing his pace, and now we're soon at a full gallop running down this fence line and Don starts to go too fast and he gets up past the flank of the calf He's basically even with the calf and then he gets a little bit ahead of the calf. The calf freaks out, turns into the fence and T-bones the fence with his head, like just blam runs right to the fence. He hits it so hard. It's back legs come off the ground and he's stunned. Don looks at me like, Hey, something went wrong here. I was like, yes, something went wrong. We all backed off. We were pretty close to the gate by this point. The calf walks into the gate kind of, woozy and dizzy and I closed the gate and that was what I call a major bovine experience
1: that's that's an amazing story <laughs> so you know a lot about you know bullfighting and you're practically like Pedro Morales I,
2: yeah that's my bullfighting experience also
1: wow that's amazing What's the other you've guy been to is not Romero, right? Romero I, yeah.
2: yeah I've been to a couple of bullfights in uh were you in Pamplona red both, both in Madrid okay
0: yeah What were those like? Tell us. Tell us what the experience was like being there. They
2: were, they were amazing. I'm a little bit reluctant to talk about it because they have this pretty terrible reputation as just kind of being cruel to animals. It's just kind of nonstop butchery. I just don't see it that way. I mean, it's it's. There are times that it's gory. So in the book, Jake warns Brett to look away when the when the bulls charge the horses because this is the roughly the fourth part of the bullfight that they're that he's describing the there's a oh man i think it's called a picador is a man on horseback rides into the ring it's just the two of them i mean set the scene there's a huge ferocious bull weighing i don't know, how many thousands of pounds who is like charging and angry at everything that he sees going after every bit of movement and into this sort of, and everybody clears off and the man on the horse rides into the bull ring. And it's basically just the horse, the man, and this bull. And the bull runs from across the stadium. I mean, charges across the stadium into the horse. And they used to do it without any sort of protection on the horse, which is why, Jake is telling Brett, look away when the, like, when the bull hits the horse, because they would just kill the horse every time, of course. And, usually, and sometimes they would throw the horse over. But the point is, there's a man on the back of the horse who has a very short tipped spear. And when the bull hits the horse, he leans over and pricks the bull between his shoulder blades. This is part of the setup for getting the bull to lower his head so that the matador at the end of the bullfight can put his sword, we're going to talk about this, right? Like, it's gross. Put his sword between the shoulder blades of the horse. The, the blade has a slight curve to it. It goes, if it's done perfectly, it goes through the shoulder blades and that curve strikes the heart of the bull and it's dead immediately. Like, immediately it's dead. It rarely happens because it's so hard to do, but that's the idea behind the demise of the of the bull. Okay, now they have leather sheathing on the horse, so the horse just like hopefully just suffers some really bad bruises in the morning. But that's the idea.
0: I kept re- I kept the, th- well through this whole section. I kept thinking Europe is a very different place than the United States, it, like in so many ways. Europe. What's that? In Spain is a really different place
2: than the rest of Europe.
0: That's true. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I mean, I was even thinking about how I mean from from the perspective on the bullfights to the dancing in the street stuff to the perspective on on drinking. Um and I was thinking about how if you're if you're reading this and you're say you're from Burgundy in France or you're from Pamplona or something like that, then your perspective on the amount of drinking that they do and drinking at noon and all those sorts of things is very different than someone who has lived in America where we had prohibition and Puritanism. Right. And I'm not making judgments on those two things, but they impacted the way we think about, uh, drinking certainly, but, um, uh, cultural reveries in general, you know, (laughs) where, whereas in in Spain or France or Italy, cultural feasting, which is tied to often tied to the church is, um, is such a big part of the culture, and you think, and it talks about the peasants coming into the city, and you know, starting in the wine shops, and then it didn't matter later. You know, the the whole experience that the book is talking about is such a foreign one to America, where like, okay, we have fireworks on the Fourth of July, and we go to sporting events, but we don't have these like, our customs are so different, and yeah. it's not that they're tame, per se. It's that they're they're so um um. Like we okay, so here this is what made me realize it. You think about New Orleans, right? A city like New Orleans has all these these big customs, and not just ones tied to Mardi Gras, but these customs of cultural celebrations and part, you know, for lack of a better word, partying. And everywhere else in America is like New Orleans is so weird.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) And it's like they think of it as decadent, Um, and I'm not making a judgment on whether or not that's the right take. I'm just saying it, it puts into perspective why people like Jake Barnes would go to Spain and find it like magical, you know, and, and find it the place to, to hide and, and try to recover from the damage that they've been through, from the things that they saw in the war and everything that's changed about them and to recover from being wounded and to bury their sorrows, you know. And um, in America, it's like we face those things, <laughs> you know. Go I, ahead. I read this book.
2: One of my friends recommended it to me and it ended up being a really bad book, but the general premise of it was really intriguing to me. The general premise was um, mental unhealth, like diagnosable mental and and emotional, I should say emotional um, diseases, the wrong word, maladies have increased at the same or at an inverse rate to the decrease of public festivals in the United States. That's the general premise of the book. So basically, as mental illness has increased, it has increased at the same rate inverse to the disappearance of public festivals. And I'm like, it's an intriguing idea because our characters go far beyond the pale in this book, but there is something about like, this is a moment, it's a week long fiesta and everyone is just sort of like, there's just this massive social release of energy. Like everybody just needs like, have a great time for a week. And then you kind of like return to your daily, your daily tasks. And there was something about the book was kind of arguing. Yeah. If you don't have that, if you don't have this opportunity for sort of like mass social play it it puts a dent in you psychologically and emotionally i'm like doesn't strike me as ludicrous at all it makes some sense but we're not talking about our characters are doing something Our characters are like doing something really different this is not just like socially blowing off some steam this is something else
0: (laughs) well yeah i suppose that's true so um tim you said you 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 guess this is going to be a uh an episode on on Lady Brett and who actually has been relatively uh, off stage for our conversations here on the show so far. Um, Heidi, you you mentioned in a text thread, I guess yesterday or something, that you had questions about her. Um, so I guess we can just dive right into that topic. We you know it makes sense. I've got a question that I'm saving and I'm either going to ask it at the end of this episode or next episode. So um, you know. Now there's a little added mystery to the episode, Just, you know.
1: Suspense building.
0: Suspense, yeah. Mm. Maybe a little bit of um, tension building, mm. which is what happened in this section. And there's even that thing where it, it, he talks, to, he keeps talking about tension, 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 and then he says the fiesta began with an explosion, um, which I think is you know we can talk about that if you guys want to. But let's talk, Lady Brett. I don't want to talk boxing later. Um, Lady Brett, you had questions, Heidi. What was yeah. your question again?
1: Well, I'm I'm curious a so she's a a dividing line in the story for sure for Jake and for every man that she encounters at all and um so i i i feel positive that there's going to be a different reaction to her based on your gender right so women are going to respond to lady brett in a certain way maybe not across the board but i'm really curious a male impression of her like well what's and- your
0: can, can you start with your impression
1: yeah. L- so last week we, we briefly mentioned, uh, that Hemingway paints, uh, male characters, uh, that express what modern terms might call toxic masculinity. We discussed that for a little bit. Um, and in some ways, Brett's the counterpoint to that, right? There's, there's, a um, Uh, every man in the whole story is in love with her in some way. She's the only female character of any kind of weight in this story. Uh, And she both attracts and repels and creates this conflict that we're seeing play out in this section um, within this group of male friends. And so there's... I know that toxic femininity is not a term used in the cultural landscape, but it's the counterpoint, right? Like she has this seductive quality to her. She's sleeping around. Um, and then she's very public about that. She's getting drunk. So she is she is the counterpoint to this toxic masculinity. Um, and yet Tim, you said something really interesting. I don't. I hope you don't mind me saying this because I'm, I'm just about to. Um, in the text <laughs> thread, have a that David referred to um, you said this is the section that makes me a little bit less in love with Brett, la- with Lady Brett. Yeah. So I'm really curious what you meant by that. Is she an attractive character to the general male reader? What is
0: the general male reader? I have no
1: idea. (laughs) I am 0% going to speculate on that. I guess maybe (laughs) I'll make the question particular then. Is this, is she an attractive (laughs) character to Tim McIntosh and David Kern? So I was trying to displace it a little bit by saying the the general male reader, but if you just want to go there, let's do it. (laughs) Listen,
2: I don't want to admit this because I recognize that Brett has terrible, terrible faults. But I think that she's tremendously winsome. And I I don't think that everybody, I mean, every single man who has a conversation with Brett in the book falls for her in some way. Like Mm -hmm. if there is an extended conversation or an extended exposure to Lady Brett Ashley, the man falls in love.
0: And well, everybody
2: does, not even right. the men. Like, the it's women like,
1: do too. Yeah, Right, right. And I
2: think that it's not, I don't think that Hemingway is just telling us that, but I think he's also kind of like showing us the things about Lady Brett that make us fall in love with her. She's, she's charming. She's witty. By all indications, she's just stunningly beautiful. And I think perhaps more than anything else, I think the fantasy part of, Lady Brett Ashley, is that she's kind of one of the guys,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, and it, it, throughout, the movie, she, throughout the movie, throughout the movie, the, throughout <laughs>
1: the movie playing in my head every time I read this story. Yep.
2: <laughs> I started to correct that by saying, "Okay, oh, not throughout the movie, so, how mm-hmm. silly!" Throughout the play. Oh, wait, no, not throughout yeah. the book. <laughs> throughout the book. Um, TV show. It's always her and a group of men. Mm-hmm. She's, she's never with a girlfriend, ever. Right. She's always surrounded by men. And I think there's a way that she can engage with men on their, on their terrain mm. that gives men, especially younger, you know, they're still relatively young at this point, um, this sense that, oh, my gosh, she's beautiful. And feminine, and you won't believe it, but she's also one of the guys. Mm-hmm. Which we can talk about whether or not that's true or not. Like whether she's <laughs> actually one of the guys or not. That's that seems to me like a slightly different question. David, what do you what do you think of Lady Brett?
0: She's a hard character for me because she reminds me a lot of Daisy from Gatsby, <laughs> mm. um, where it's difficult to like it's difficult to know how much to hold her responsible for what she does. Um, There's this incredible scene. It's on 159 in the Orange Scribner book. It's in chapter 15. And I think that this is where Hemingway is bringing a lot of the, the, the story into focus and telling us what her character is meant to be to the story. Um, it's, it says on 158, the fiesta was really started. And then um, he, there's two paragraphs here I want to read. The bottom of 158 is where I'll start. The paragraph starts with, that afternoon was a big religious procession. Um, Tim, I don't know what page it's on in your volume, but it's in 15. And it says, that afternoon was the big religious procession. Sam Furman was translated from one church to another. In the procession were all the dignitaries, civil and religious We could not see them because the crowd was too great. Ahead of the formal procession and behind it danced the uh, Riau Riau dancers. There was one mass of yellow shirts dancing up and down in the crowd. All we could see of the procession through the closely pressed people that crowded all the side streets and curbs were the great giants. Cigar store Indians, 30 feet high, Moors, a king and queen, whirling and waltzing solemnly to the Riau Riau. They were all standing outside the chapel where San Fermín and the dignitaries had passed in, leaving a guard of soldiers, the giants, with the men who danced in them, standing beside their resting frames, and the dwarfs moving with their whacking uh, bladders through the crowd. We started inside, and there was a smell of incense, and people filing back into the church. But Brett was stopped just inside the door because she had no hat. So we went out again and along the street that ran back from the chapel into town. The street was lined on both sides, with people keeping their place at the curb for the return of the procession some dancers formed a circle around brett and started to dance they wore big wreaths of white garlics around their neck next they took bill and me by the arms and put us in the circle bill started to dance too they were all chanting brett wanted us to dance wanted to dance but they did not want her to they wanted her as an image to dance around when the song ended with the sharp ria Riau," they rushed us into the wine shop we stood at the counter they had Brett seated on a wine cask. Um, so I'll stop there. But, you know, for me, when I say that it's hard to know what to hold her responsible for, on the one hand, there are obvious things you hold her responsible for. And yet on the other hand, um, I think one of the reasons that she is a part of the guys is because she's a symbol
1: mm-hmm.
0: to them. And she recognizes her symbolic role within the group. Um, And so you even see, you know, I mentioned when you were talking that the guys all love her, but everyone seems to love her. Like everybody who comes in contact with her, to your point, Tim, it's like this magnetic field, right? And here you have, she becomes the center. It's a religious procession that turns into a dance surrounding Lady Brett. Right. And then some of the men get thrown in there like these concentric circles and you've got Lady Brett and then outside them is like Bill and Jake and then outside them is all these people and then outside them is this religious ceremony. And That image Brett wanted to dance, but they didn't want her to. Mm -hmm. They wanted her as an image to dance Dance around. around. Is in some ways for me like it's 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 Jake Barnes as as much as anything. It's Jake Barnes confessing what he knows about their group. Mm. He's like almost I almost read that as a projection. Like the the people themselves probably don't feel that way. But it's like he is recognizing in the moment of what's happening in her magnetism, in the natural thing that happens with someone who's magnetic, he is almost confessing what he recognizes is true about he and his group of friends and her role in the group. And that, you know, when he says they wanted her as an image to dance around, I think he's saying, Robert and Bill and Michael and I wanted her as an image to dance around. And he's the only one that recognizes that. And he's the only one that is beginning to understand the consequences of that and what that means to her. And so that makes her a more sympathetic character. I feel yes. more sorry for her in this moment. So while maybe you've... You mentioned that, Tim, you mentioned the idea of falling less in love with her. I think there's a sense in which maybe you fall less in love with her. She's less mysterious. Uh, and she's... And and like, the question of her magnetism comes more into focus here. And you begin to realize that the sort of natural magnetism he has, that she has, is like a... um it, it It's this people are drawn to her, but she's not able to escape that. You know, she's mm-hmm. not able to, right. to to like separate the two magnets, you know and 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 that that people are drawn to her draws her into a sort of um, set of concentric circles that it becomes a burden for her, and that she can't escape. Um, and I think that's why ultimately, I think it's important that she then goes to Romero later on, because what she's doing there, I think the reason she feels so desperately. You know, there's that moment at the end of the section where she says, are you in love with me? And he says, yes. And she says, then help me, you know, get with Romero. Right. And she's like shaking. She's saying, this is, I feel like this all inside. And at first you read that and you're like, well, that's just stupid. It's like a 15 year old okay. kid feeling right. in love. But I think what she's doing there is expressing this like deep inner need to escape the, the sort of, circles of hell that she's living in i'm using yes. I'm, i don't know that she would say that and it's this deep desire to do that and so when she is at, and what he's doing is he's is helping her escape this sort of prison of magnetism mm-hmm. that she's she's trapped in and and i think he recognizes that although he might not say it and so i think she becomes a much more sympathetic character um and so while maybe you're not like in love with her like robert Cohn, you're not you've been sort of conditioned to feel how robert Cohn feels about her Now I think we're starting to be able to say that look at her with a more realistic um, and true and, and actually loving set of eyes because we're getting more of what Jake recognizes is necessary to help her. That was long. Sorry. No, that was really good.
1: That's great. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. Like she's, she's a tragic character and most women don't like women like this. That's, but I love what you said, the prison of her own magnetism. So I'm going to quote the new Taylor Swift album, as you all knew is coming at some point on this show (laughs) that, um, so there's a song on the album that I kept thinking of when I read this section and it's a song called, and it's another image to add to this tragic image of this beautiful woman who is trapped by her own, by what she represents to people. Um, and the song is called mirror ball and it's, uh, and the, it's written in the first per person and it's she compares herself to a mirror ball in a club, like a disco ball, and says, I'll be your mirror ball. And you can see yourself from all these different angles, right? I'll hold myself up as this glittering image to dance around that you're not seeing me, you're seeing yourself. And then thus, you think you're in love with me, right? And I think that that is another image that captures what Lady Brett then represents, um within this novel and Hemingway is often accused of writing bad women characters. Um if this is your first experience with Hemingway then lucky you because this uh to our listeners because this is his by far his best female character. She's a magnificent character and, and she is exactly what David's expressing this tragic uh victim of her own beauty and her own charisma that never figures out how, or she's trying here in this section to, to find a way to not be an image to dance around and nobody will let her do it. They keep her trapped in the circle. So, you know, the same way that there's this pathos to the male characters who are trapped in this dysfunctional experience of manhood and can never, you know, this, it ends up just being an, a a trap of impotence Brett is the same. She is, like I said, most women don't like women like this. But if you read this with a softness towards her with what, and probably most women do know what this is like, especially beautiful and interesting women, (laughs) that there's... There is this sense of being trapped as an image to move around, but not ever being truly seen. And, and that's what she's experiencing here. And there is a tragedy to that and a pathos to that. And I, I think in order to understand the soul of this book, you have to let yourself feel compassion and empathy for Brett as much as you do for the male characters.
0: So I was thinking a lot about um, that question as I was reading. And I was wondering, I was thinking about how this book uses like circles. Mm. Um, and ultimately that comes to a head in this section. There's two examples of that. There's everyone gathered around her in this dancing scene. And then of course, what's the big circle, right? It's the um the bulldog, the ro- right? Yeah, the arena. Mm. Yeah. And so I was trying to think, is is that is Hemingway creating a correlation then between um well, let me just ask this. What is the correlation between this dancing scene and Lady Brett's role on that? And, of course, you get you get um, Bill, Jake, and Brett in the circle with all the people dancing around them. And then later on, we're going to get in the bullfight. We're going to get the bull, the matador, mm. and I guess the horse. And yeah, the uh, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like, is, there, is, is Hemingway creating this correlation? Like, does he give us this circle dancing around Lady Brett with her at the core At this point because he knows that then we're gonna get the bullfight later and that these two things are meant to mirror each other Hmm. how do you read that am i reading too much into that i mean is it just i mean i don't think i don't think i'm reading too much into it to suggest that like there's these circles or whatever but do you think that these characters are meant to represent different elements of the bullfighting heidi you're
1: oh you are dancing in my
0: ready you're you are like a bull in the in the gate You're about to throw off the rider. I know that's a different bulb okay. bovine sport. I'm sorry, but.
1: Tim. I am absolutely not going to talk for very long because I just said a lot <laughs> of things, and then I want to hear from you on this. But I, yes, this. So it's very tempting in this book to try to allegorize it, right? To say who is the bull, who is the steer, who is the picador, who is the matador. If you're, if you found the correlation, maybe don't do that because in some ways, this this whole section with exactly what you're saying, David reminded me some of of our conversations about Frankenstein when there's, you know, uh, there's the comparison to Milton's Paradise Lost, but everybody kind of plays a different role. The, the question we're tempted to ask is who is Satan here and who is Adam and who is God and who is Eve and all that. But they're all, like, I think in this, don't allegorize this. Don't look for one-to-one correlations. Look at it as a fluid contemplation of, of the dangers, um, and the, um, the fears and just how dangerous it is to be human, uh, in, in the arena of relationships, because they're all kind of moving in and out fluidly between these roles, right? The steer, the, the, the bull, uh, who is the predator and who is the prey is a very fluid contemplation in this whole section and throughout the book. But yes, we are absolutely meant to see the dangers that are playing out in the ring as being very similar to the dangers and the risks that are taken uh, and the wounds that are received uh, and dodged all throughout the uh, kind of the delicate the delicate dance of these relationships.
2: Hi, do you, do you have a sense that, um, on maybe a semi-conscious level, this attraction from Brett to Romero, the bullfighter, is in part because she can identify, oh, he's just like me. He's a showpiece. Yep. He's the center of the ring. And she participates in that. Ooh, I would love to put see him put on those trousers. You know what I mean? Like, she kind of like-
1: Objectifies him.
0: Yeah. Yep. She makes him what she is. Yes. Exactly. But I
2: wonder if part of the attraction between the two of them is sort of like two celebrities that find mm. each other at the hotel. They're constantly surrounded by this sort of like
1: adoring no- crowd and entourage. Yep. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And they can, they find each other and they understand each other. There's something about their experience of being at the center of the ring always and being this sort of like, um, Icon of entertainment, a la the Taylor Swift lyrics that you're talking about. That that's that can be a lonely feeling, Hmm. and they both can identify with each other. And that the whole trouble is, it's completely unsustainable. There's just no way that that sort of thing can last. But I think on an initial meeting, there's a lot of common ground that they could find with each other because they're playing a,
1: a pretty similar role. Yes. Yes. And the question of who's the bull, right? Like who's going, because they have that very, very, very significant conversation. Do you always kill your friends? Yes.
2: Right. Oh my God. Right. Like or the they'll whole, kill. Or
1: they'll kill me first. Yes, the whole story is just friends killing each other so they don't get killed, right? And that's this. This that's what happens in the ring. There's no reason. Not unlike why these,
0: our. Not unlike our triumvirate. Yes,
1: exactly. Yep. I mean, I'm totally gonna take you both down. I have a plan. But no, I'm just kidding. Um, that. <laughs> I like or how you just throw I? that in there, yes. just for
0: the audience's sake. I'm, I'm not. I'm serious just.
1: About kidding. That. Um,
0: I w- but, I would never. Yeah.
1: But yes, that's exactly right. They're both there's There's no reason why these bulls have to kill each other other than that there's a crowd there and that there's an organized dance to it. It's all for entertainment,
0: and in a sense, the 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 um, it's a
1: fiesta
0: the fiesta of it all also, mm-hmm. like makes the bulls crazy. Like it makes them you know it it gets them anxious and, you know, makes them violent just by its very nature.
1: Right. So at some point it's not, they're you know, not really the
0: conditions for a good relationship. That's
1: exactly right. You just that's the same principle. You take a bunch of angry bulls and throw them in a ring, uh, with some steers and some horses, and wave a red flag in front of them and surround them by a bunch of screaming people who've been drinking. It's the same thing that's gonna happen if you take a bunch of screaming people and stick them all in a small town and give them a bunch of booze for a week. Right. That's the that's that's the exploration of the novel, right? Like why? Why is this? Why is this the way that it is?
0: So why does J- why does Jake, do you think, at the end of this section, she says, that's what I said a minute ago, he helps her. Like he introduces her to Romero. And like and then at the end, he, he leaves her in the, the cafe. And then when he comes back.
1: It was not pleasant.
0: They're gone. Why mm-hmm. does he do that? Tim, what do you think? Great question. Because I've heard people say like, and I've had students when I taught this be like, people wouldn't do that. If you love someone, you wouldn't like set them up. of course, you know, what does a 16 year old know is what I would say, but. I I think, I think it's
2: absolutely believable. I think he would do exactly what he did. Um, I think he's completely in love with her. I think he's kind of resigned to the fact that they can't be together. And he's, Forever friend zoned. That's just where he is. And so, what do you do? And you know what's so funny is every high school (laughs) has done this. When you have a crush, you will do things that are like counter to your intentions in the hopes of perpetuating the relationship that you do have. You're friend zoned. The woman that you um, are in love with has friend zoned you, she's interested in somebody else. Of course you don't want her to get with somebody else, but to kind of like preserve what you do have, you'll do things that are against your kind of romantic interests.
0: Ironically, when I was like 18, I had a friend who basically this exact same situation happened to.
2: And what did did your friend do?
1: Go on.
0: Well, what do you mean? What did he do? This
2: happened to him. How did he respond?
0: Uh, I, I think he... I think he did it, and then he got, and then at that, and then he, and then I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I have that much insight into what was going on inside of him at that point. <laughs> Zoned. Bye. Okay, so he was dating a girl, yep. and then they broke up. Okay, and it was like one of those misunderstanding breakup things. And then she like somehow manipulated him because she knew that he still loved him or liked him yeah. or whatever you want to call it when you're 18 uh, into um, taking her. From like some gathering or party or something to, I don't even I don't know all the details. To like this the house of this other guy who she liked and he knew that she liked and so she like because you know who knows why people do what they do. But she got him to do that, took him there, and then he dropped her off. And then I don't think I think at that point, like in my opinion, is what's happening when something like that happens is in most cases that was the girl like trying to blowing everything up like pushing him to the brink. Cause at that point you don't really come back from that. You know, it's like, there's so much anger that would have to happen. So coming back from that is like that, like that in and of it's, I should write an, I should write a short story with this. Hold on. I'll be back in like two hours. Okay. Um, You're fast <laughs> but, writer. but, but um, no, that was just to write the first paragraph. Um, But me. the, uh, um, like this in this case, in in the case of my friend, he was not suffering from a war wound that made it so that the relationship was impossible, <laughs> that I know of. <laughs> that would explain more now that I think about it. But, um, but but so then the so then I guess to your point though it's, you know, reality is a strange thing. People do do strange things. I,
2: I could also imagine your friend getting in a fight with like the his ex girlfriend's
0: yeah the girl yeah I get that, that's a totally yeah re- like just storming in and. Yeah. Yeah right yeah you gotta have like a good solid fist fight in the rain out in the front yard right yeah got like a fence has got to get knocked over and like someone's got to get hit over the head with a bottle or something yep 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 um i think our short story, my short story is writing itself tim would you like to help me write this <laughs> turn this into a screenplay um but then do you think that jake is doing this because she wants it or because he thinks that it's best for her, because in a way, I'm I'm really struggling with this question actually, because I think that what he recognizes is what I said that like she can break free of the the circles, like this is an outsider. It's like a different thing, and he might be hopeful that that gives her frees her from Michael and Robert and all these guys. But or does he just doing because she's like he's just like whatever you want?
1: I mean, your question it's a good question, and and one I've been wrestling with in a different way in reading this. Is Jake part of the adoring crowd that is around her that has somehow, yeah. that yeah, is, yeah. is worshiping he part of her as the image? Or is he, you know, does his wound give him an, a kind of an outsider perspective? Can he displace himself from being a part of this crowd? And how you interpret their relationship is based on how you answer that question
0: it's, as a his, reader. His wound is like, allows him to be... Um, Um, dispassionate.
1: Does he know her? Like, I mean, he has that, and you know, as he's drifting off to sleep, he has that drunken contemplation. That's like really cool. I love that part when he's thinking about his philosophy of life and the transactional nature of human relationships and you pay for this. And he does seem to have at that moment, some kind of actual insight into Brett as a person. Not just as the object of his love and desire, but someone who is paying in her own way in order to be the person that she is. So he does have some kind of meta-consciousness of of Brett as as a human being. But other than that, like, do you, that's a real question, like, do you read him as being part of the problem or as actually desiring, as, as actually seeing her as a human
0: Tim, what do you think about this? I think he
2: sees her as a human.
1: Huh. Like, you think he really loves her?
2: I think he genuinely loves her. And if he has a tactic in the section where he kind of sets her up with Romero, I think his tactic is, and this, he too will fall away. Just like Michael is falling away. Just like Robert Cohn is falling away. Just like your husband is falling away. And guess who's going to remain? this guy like if he has a tactic i think that's his tactic but i actually think that he knows i actually think that he knows brent and like genuinely loves her and i think that she knows that he does
0: i agree because i think that there's a big difference between like there's a practical little thing that the book does that i think shows the difference or suggests the difference between cone and Jake, and it's that line that you referenced earlier about how her eyes crinkled up, mm. crinkle up, and the implic, you know he, that's how he describes her smiling. He doesn't mm-hmm. say she's smiling. but and I think that when you look at the way Cone looks at her is this like he, he always talks about like he he's like staring at her. like, yeah. you know, he's he's got he like looking at her with like this desire, right? And when Jake looks at her, he notices little things. He notices that the way her eyes crinkle when she smiles. And I think that it's important, like the idea of like, the, the way that like eyes are symbolic in fiction a lot of the times, I think is important there. And I think that the way that you connect with people um, by when you make eye contact and when you break eye contact, that's like symbolic of a disconnect. I think right. that that's suggestive of the fact that he sees her as a human being and not just as this like, you know. Um, Mirrorball. Yeah, or or yeah, or uh, as this like Yeah, of this like, you know, object of desire. Like Robert Cohn doesn't want her because she is like someone he wants to spend the rest of his life with because of her well, to put it like in the most blanket, like simple ways for because of her personality, right? Right. He wants her because of her body and he wants her because of what it does for him, his reputation, like the way people think about him. Princess.
2: Remember that whole adventure that he wants to go on in the be- the beginning of the book?
0: Yeah, yeah. That's
2: what, I think that's what he wants from Brad. He wants a South American princess.
0: Yeah, and I think, but I think Jake sees her as a person. I think Tim's right, and I think the, that those those I think the way he sees her, uh, the smiling and her eyes, I think is uh, meant to be symbolic hmm. of that. But you don't. You think that he? I Jake don't know.
1: Is, I I don't know. I. I go back and forth on this. Every time I've read it, I've read it very differently. The first time I read it, I read it at face value. They're they're in love, and they can't be together because of his wound. And then um, he's the only one who really loves her. But isn't that what all men think of an image of a woman they hold up on a pedestal? I'm the only one who truly loves her. I like this. Like so, oh, I, d- I don't think so. Maybe not. So I don't know. I go back and forth on it. Sometimes if, I think he's just one of the people dancing around her as an image. And I think that if a woman is like, I,
0: he, I think he, she is universally known as being incredibly beautiful. Right. And so I think he recognizes that everybody who comes in contact with her falls in love with her, and it's just a matter of degrees and what kind of and what that actually means. So I don't, I don't think he necessarily thinks of himself as like. Some heroic figure. That's I don't think he sees himself as like a knight to rescue. No,
1: Cone does. Cone sees himself as he's the knight in shining armor, and he's the only one who truly loves this lady. Love, right? And he's going to come rescue her. And we learn next week what what Pedro really thinks about her. We Mike has his own. You know, we haven't talked about him and their relationship yet. What is? What holds them together? What are Yarl's thoughts on on them?
0: Mike and, and Brett.
1: Yeah, why does she choose him?
0: Be- because when all this is gone, he's going to have offer her a future.
1: Well, he doesn't have any money, right? He's broke now.
0: Well, yeah, but plot
2: point. Go question. ahead, to Sorry to Interrupt you, David? No. Do we? Okay, so when we first hear about Mike.
1: Mm-hmm. We broke no we learn it in this section right yeah do we
2: do we think that he has hidden that from
1: brett no she knows right because she knows um because she's the one who says tell them the story like they when that weird conversation when he's oh man that whole conversation mike is such a sympathetic character to me although he's kind of the worst one maybe other than cone but i like i
0: all well, these people, the, he he I tells just the love truth them. they're all mike, such nice people mike tells the truth that's why that's why he's, he's you have more sympathy he's for him and just
1: this broken person like the war broke him right he won't go get his medals and then he gives them away and he's been cheated by his business partner and and he loves Brett and she's cheating on him all the time and telling him about it. And well,
0: that's why she chooses him. She shows him once. And then she, when he said st- was loyal to her after she cheated on him, she's, you know, like no matter what, she can always go back to him. That wouldn't be true for everybody. Yeah. He's kind of a nest.
1: A what? A, a, nest, a
2: nest. To like, return to. Yeah. But it's a strange sort of situation because he's broke.
1: Right. So I, I, that's, Yeah.
0: I actually think that line, I, I marked this in my book. You know, when, she, when um, Bill says, How'd you go bankrupt? And Mike's like, Two ways, gradually and then suddenly. And like, <laughs> that's one of those lines that's like classic Hemingway, this dry mm-hmm. humor. But also, I think in some ways, it might be representative of like her, the future of their relationship. Like, if someone said, How did you guys split up? Mike's going to say in, t- in 10 years, Gradually and then suddenly. And it was like you know, and and so like he has been sort of conditioned to have people be disloyal to him, mm-hmm. and that I think makes him sort of sympathetic. Yes. Um, I have a question for you guys. Why does the book begin with Robert Cohn? Boy,
2: I've asked myself that question a lot.
0: Because in this section, in chapter, I'm just gonna keep turning pages till I get to the beginning of the chapter thirteen. Um, it calls back to the first lines of the book. because um, It talks about Robert Cohen and him being a boxer. Mm-hmm. And then on page 144, um, there's this bit where they're um, watching into the cage. And it says, the bull saw them and charged. A man shouted from behind one of the boxes and slapped his hat against the planks. And the bull, before he reached the steer, turned gathered himself and charged where the man had been, trying to reach him behind the planks with a half dozen quick searching drives with the right horn. My God, isn't he beautiful? Brett said. We were looking right down on him. Like how he knows how to use his horns, I said. He's got a left and a right, just like a boxer. And so that calls back to mind the very yep. first page where we're talking about boxing. And so then there's another like circle, right? Well, I mean, then boxing yes. is not in a circle. I mean, I guess- It is, I mean, it's I mean, in I, a I, ring. Right, but um, but um, boxing rings aren't circle, are they?
1: Are they yeah. actually they have, circle. Well, they have corners. They have corners, but in a
0: boxing ring, you go to your corner. But
1: it's the same principle, right? You fight it out within an enclosed no, I know. I'm space. Just, I'm
0: now thinking, wait, why do they call it a ring if it's not a perfect circle?
2: No, it's a ring. It is. There are little barricades set up like close to the walls that you could hide behind, but it's a ring. I, I, I think it's supposed to be a perfect circle. Maybe an oval? I don't think so.
0: If you look, Google bo- boxing ring. Like, look, it's square. Oh, a
2: bo- I thought you were talking about a bullfight ring.
0: No, no, no. I'm saying boxing ring. Yeah, yeah. No, boxing ring is square in those corners, and they, but they call it a ring. Which maybe that comes from the idea of like the um, what's, what was it? gladiator? Where they the, the Colosseum? Yeah. Maybe it comes from that. Like it just got passed down. Anyway, that was an aside I'd never thought about before. So Uh, now I don't know what I was saying.
1: I've been thinking a lot about this question about Robert Cohn. And I don't know if you can fully, fully answer the question till the next section of reading with my full thoughts. But I think that this, his particular, his particular character is, is, um, is really interesting to me in this reading because I have always read him through the group's eyes as being annoying, as behaving badly, um, and he should just leave them alone. Like he's, he's part of what tears them apart, right? But this particular- I love that you're
0: getting, getting at this.
1: Like in this particular reading, I think he's the most honorable out of all of them. And and then there's this fluid kind of, this is what I was saying earlier. There's this fluid kind of comparison between all of them and what's happening in the ring. Um, and you have This Mike, is why
0: Hemingway's a genius.
1: Exactly. You have Mike accusing him of being a steer, right? And I have always accepted that. However, I think he's the bull. And I think he fits both throughout in different ways throughout the story. But I think that's why we open with the boxing image connected with Cone, that he's this unexpected power, this force that nobody even remembers. Nobody liked him in high school or wherever, in prep school when he learned how to box. Nobody remembers him, and yet he had the powerful right hook, right? And that's...
0: And no wonder he clings to any hope mm -hmm. of being with this... The most beautiful yeah, girl he's ever seen before. but he won't before. give
1: up, right? He's tenacious. And he right. he has had an experience with her that and by all moral rights should forge a connection.
0: Well, she says he's not wrong to think it doesn't mean something or whatever. Right. Like he should. It-
1: so like if you go, if a woman, a beautiful woman goes away with a man and then he's like, well, maybe you're my girlfriend now, that's actually not that big of a leap. So that's, I think... We see him through the companion's eyes. But to your point, I think that's the boxing connection is that Hemingway, again, like you said, as a genius, is constantly inviting us to see these characters multiple ways. We don't have to just take Jake's word for it even.
0: Yeah, for me, the thing about Hemingway that makes him a genius is not necessarily that he was writing in this sort of sparse way that eventually becomes super influential. That's great and I love it. But also there's this well, the way that he plays with point of view in the story mm-hmm. yep. is so is so interesting because he just gives us us to your to your point what Mike is saying mm-hmm. and and our narrator Jake is the other point of view who's not commenting on what that on what that witness. Mm-hmm. he's a passive witness but then he also is offering his contemplations in this sort of like Im- Im- implicit between the lines sort of way as he is contemplating his experiences having lived through this. And then you get... So you get the perspectives of all these different characters, which in the moment can feel like what the book is trying... Like the obvious thing the book is trying to tell you. But then you have to draw back out of it and you get all these different layers of point of view. and And when you draw back and look at what they're all saying, there's not all these weird inconsistencies. Like there's a cohesion to the way all those point of views interact with one another that is like for a book that doesn't seem, it feels like it kind of just like flowed out of him, right? There is this cohesion with the themes and the point of views and all this sort of thing that is rare. Like it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's incredible the way he manages to, to tie all that together in a sort of unified approach. And it, to me, it's mesmerizing. Like the way he manages yeah. to do it, it's, it's downright Shakespearean for me, the way that he, although I think he has another layer of perspective just because Shakespeare is a play, so he's putting words into the the characters. Um, most of it's through the characters' voices, but um, I, I think I think he's the closest thing to Shakespeare that um, that America's had in the last two hundred years. But in terms of how he creates the, that those cohesive layers, um, which is a big statement, and I'll probably regret having said it.
2: But you, David, I think you said that in the first podcast, didn't he? Heidi,
1: he said the Shakespeare was the greatest influence on Hemingway. But I think that David's right in that in that the characters drawn by Hemingway are, I mean, just you could read this story at face value. You could read any of Hemingway Hemingway's work at face value. Maybe other than the Old Man and the Sea, which you kind of need the allegory. Like, but um, you can read them at face value, and they're just really good stories that draw out this emotion. But they're so complex. And this one, yeah. And I think it's a mistake to read it as a straightforward allegory, like I said, and try to figure out who represents who, what in the ring. I think Hemingway
0: would hate that, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's fluid. You're seeing what, it's a contemplation. It's a meditation on the nature of relationships and on humanity and universal value and all the things that we've talked about. And you just kind of have to let it flow over you
0: yeah yeah and read it multiple times like yes. it's one of those books again it seems so simple like the first time you've read it you've got it but then the more you read it like every time you read it you're gonna find some new layer or some new thing that Hemingway's doing and you know that's why his book that's why they've lasted a hundred years so far or
1: right
0: eight. Oh almost a hundred years almost a
1: hundred years
0: this book um, another theory about why Robert Cone might begin the? Book? yeah we got away yeah. from that yeah sorry yeah
2: By the way, a little product placement here. I have the same question about why on the plays The Thing, which we will be recording act one of Merchant of Venice today. Why Merchant of Venice begins with Antonio and why it's called Mm. the
0: Merchant Merchant of Venice. Venice.
2: Our central character is Shylock. So anyway. Or
0: Portia, yeah. (laughs)
2: <laughs> why is the play not named after Portia or Shylock anyway?
0: And Shylock would be a great name for a play, incidentally. You just call it Shylock. Shylock. It's right up there with Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> um.
2: Why does the book open with Robert Cohn? For me, I increasingly see this book as I, I really do read it as a book about this hinge point in a shift, a massive shift in values in the West that right. happened after mm. World War yep. I.
1: Absolutely. And I think
2: Robert Cohn, and also we'll find out Romero later, both of them are representatives of the old world. It's harder to see it in Robert Cohn because he's hanging out with all the kind of like the new values people, Jake and Brett and Mike and Bill. But he has, to Heidi's point, he has this um his honor he has integrity and he's irritating, but he like he wants to stand for something, and nothing pleases him more than when Mike is insulting him across the table, and Mike gets up to like fight him remember um I hope I've not read too far ahead. Robert stands up, takes off his glasses, and he waits for him to come to him because it will be an honorable <laughs> it will be an honorable slaying of Mike, you know like he yeah. knows.
0: It'll be a, it'll be a Alexander Hamilton, uh, duel. (laughs) Right.
2: And he, and, and Robert will be in the right in doing that, you know? And I think repeatedly what is, I think frustrating about Robert is that he's living according to the old code. A man, when a man is in love with a woman, She stands by him and he stands by her. That's the Mm. old code. But in this new code, that's not the case anymore. Brett kind of flits between different men. The different men kind of, they tolerate it. You know, they even in some cases, they help her. And so I think that's part of the reason why Robert begins the book, because it's kind of setting this theme of there's a major pivot in Values happening in the West, and his old guard is going to come in conflict eventually with the new
0: guard. Hmm. There's that line in the first chapter. Um, see if I can find it. Well, I do like this one. He was fairly happy, except that, like many people living in Europe, he would rather have been in America and he had discovered writing. (laughs) Hmm. Um, anyway, I can't find the line I was looking for, but I think that's a great point.
2: Um, I wonder if we might pivot to the relationship between Montoya and Romero. Because I think that's really setting us up for the final episode of the book.
0: I think it actually is an interesting bridge because I don't think, I think there's some between, um, what, uh, the, the, what's the name? Roberto Moreno? Montoya. Uh, Montoya. Montoya Montoya is the guy that's like Jake's friend that he's then, the aficionado. What's the yeah.
1: Well, he's the hotel proprietor, right? The Hotel Montoya. Yeah. Right.
0: yeah. And Romero is and the And Romero, whole. yeah. Yeah. I think there's an interesting comparison to be made between Robert Cohn and Roberto yes. Moreno. And R- Cohn has Romero. this line on 144 okay. where he says it's no life being a steer. Right. And that's like I I think that's a really interesting interesting line. I um Go go ahead. We'll, we'll go on. We'll, we'll yeah, make your make point, the case. Tim.
2: Well, I, I kind of want to. I wonder if we could read um, this this peculiar conversation between Montoya and Jake before Brett and Romero meet. So for me, it's on one seventy five. For you guys, it might be one seventy four, one seventy three. Uh, second page on. Hang on, you guys. I'm getting a phone call. <laughs>
1: Are you gonna take it?
2: I I need to take the phone.
0: Call. <laughs> Alexa, answer the
2: phone. Everybody's gonna hear the phone ring. No ad. No free ads.
1: About the American ambassador. Is that the conversation you're talking about? Okay, yeah, that's, that's on page one seventy five, David.
2: So is it uh, first full paragraph? Which one? The. F- uh, I was shaving in my. It begins with I left the crowd in the cafe and went over yeah, the hotel. Yeah, yeah.
1: one seventy five. Yeah.
2: I wonder if we could read down from. I wonder if we could read that through the next page. Sure. No, Montoya, I have to go.
1: I'll be the narrator. Right. Tim can be Jake. He loves to be Jake.
2: You guys, you guys I'm Jake. Okay, I'm Jake. <laughs> yeah, but no, what? Uh, like, I think
1: what Tim means is I like, wanna, I am wait, Jake. I. <laughs> 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 uh except for you know
0: okay so then i'm montoya what is montoya's first name (laughs) they could be red there could be something right
1: yep no this is how rumors get started i don't know his name is montoya doesn't he didn't they say his first name i don't know i didn't catch it
0: i thought it was roberto so maybe i'm just completely making that up so
1: i hope you are because that's kind of funny (laughs) okay i'll start yeah I left the crowd in the cafe and went over to the hotel to get shaved for dinner. I was shaving in my room when there was a knock on the door. Come in. Montoya walked in.
0: How are you? I'm fine. No bulls today? No, nothing but rain. Where are your friends?
2: Over through Arunia. Nice accent. Thank you. Oh, I
0: didn't even mean to do an accent. (laughs)
2: Oh, I thought she was complimenting me.
0: Like the, yeah. like the true narcissist I am. I thought. She was <laughs> well, me. I, apparently so did I. So, you know, either way, we both didn't mean to.
1: I'm a mirror ball. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who's up?
1: So, where are we? I don't know. I'm sorry. i have derailed. Um,
0: where are your friends? Over at the Arunia.
1: Montoya smiled his embarrassed smile. Look,
0: do you know the American ambassador? Yes, everybody knows the American ambassador. He's here in town. No. Yes.
2: Everybody's seen him. I've seen them too.
1: He didn't say anything. I went on shaving.
2: Sit down. Let me send for a drink.
0: No, I have to go.
1: I finished shaving and put my face down into the bowl and washed it with cold water. Montoya was standing there looking more embarrassed.
0: Look, I've just had a message from them at the Grand Hotel that they want Pedro Romero and Martial Lalanda to come over for coffee tonight after dinner.
2: Well, it can't hurt
0: Marcial any. Marcial has been in San Sebastian all day. He drove over in a car this morning with Marquez. I don't think they'll be back tonight.
1: Montoya stood embarrassed. He wanted me to say something.
2: Don't give Romero the message. You think so? Absolutely.
1: Montoya was very pleased.
0: Uh, I wanted to ask you because you were an American.
2: That's what I'd do.
0: Look, people take a boy like that. They don't know what he's worth. They don't know what he means. Any foreigner can flatter him. They start this grand hotel business, and in one year, they're through. Like Albagano. Yes, like Algabeno. They're a fine lot.
2: There's one American woman down here that collects bullfighters.
0: I know, they only want the young ones.
2: Yes, the old ones get fat.
0: Or crazy like Gallo.
2: Well, it's easy. All you have to do is not give him the message.
0: He's such a fine boy. He ought to stay with his own people. He shouldn't mix in that stuff.
2: Won't you have a drink? No, I have to go.
1: Okay. Okay. So, Tim, what's going on in this conversation? Well, I,
2: I think that Montoya and Jake both know that Romero is something different. He's there's something special about him. I also think he is representative of this old world. He's, he's, he's a bullfighter. And I think it's best to think of bullfighters as more than just celebrities, but also as something like, um, they are enactors of a public ritual that makes them more than just celebrities. It makes them almost like quasi-religious figures in a way. And this one is different. He is extraordinary. And I think what Montoya's concern is, is that he's gonna be corrupted. Mm. He's really, really worried that he's gonna be corrupted. And he knows the value of Romero Jake knows the value of Romero and so this conversation is about how do I protect the purity of this boy how do I keep his eyes focused on what he does so that he doesn't get uh he doesn't get carried away he doesn't get um he doesn't get modernized hmm. That's so, my that's my
0: read It's interesting then that Jake though takes so here you have Montoya coming to him and saying, help me protect this kid, basically. But then later on, he takes Brett to the kid.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. He becomes the conduit yeah. of the boy's corruption.
0: Montoya sees it. Yes. Have we gotten to this
2: point yet? I'm sorry. I, I he, read yes. it. He
1: gives him, yes. He glares at him when he introduces him to Brett. And then at the end, after Brett and uh, and Pedro meet in the cafe, uh, Jake describes walking out under the view of the old aficionados who are sitting there in a circle. Mm. And and he says, as he walked by, he, he says, I walked by them, it was not pleasant.
0: The hard-eyed people at the bullfighter table watched me go. It was not pleasant. When I came back and looked at the cafe 20 minutes later, Brett and Pedro Romero were gone.
1: Another, I mean, I think that there's the, there's the personal aspect to here, but I think what you're saying, Tim, is really important. And on a more, if you even zoom out a little and look at it as this cultural, there's a cultural commentary on this. That it, he specifically doesn't want Pedro to be corrupted by Americans. He specifically doesn't want him to be taken and made into an image to dance around. On in a global sense, he want they're they're the protectors of Spanish culture here. This Absolutely. is. This is one of the last vestiges of public festivals uh, that are uniquely cultural, uniquely Spanish, and then it's becoming more and more international. And they're trying to resist that. There, mm-hmm. There's there's a sense of conservation, of preservation, of the old order, and of the cultural experience of this particular nation. And and that is um, you know that Hemingway and his crew were the expatriates, right? They're the expats. They're the Americans who go to live in Europe um, and bring, the question is, are they being kind of absorbed into European culture or are they the corruptors of European culture, of the old world? Um, And he's examining that in this book.
0: Yeah. That's why it's important that um, there's this question of how, well, he speaks English. Mm -hmm. He speaks a little English, but the the people wouldn't like it if the bullfighter spoke good English. So he kind of pretends that he can't speak it. And even his language is sort of, you know, stuck in the middle So what Jake is doing,
1: exactly. And what Jake does for Brett here, and this is, she calls herself, she calls herself a bitch multiple times in this, in this section. Um, And what, what he does for her is far more than personal, just because he's in love with her he's accepted by this these people he comes back year after year to the fiesta and he's a true aficionado and that's unheard it's of funny. to be an american yeah. aficionado and and he jeopardizes that while pimping them out to each other yeah and there's she this, knows that
0: there's the right after the part that tim was reading on 180 there's the part where specifically montoya sees them because it's the first time that romero meets brett and it says um romero looked up smiling and then it says just then montoya came into the room he started to smile at me and then he saw pedro romero with a big glass of cognac in his hand sitting laughing between me and a woman with bare shoulders at a table full of drinks he didn't even nod montoya mm-hmm. went out of the room and so right it's like that- happening in stages and he he recognizes there what's about to happen yeah you know he doesn't he doesn't say anything he doesn't give him any kind of recognition there's no Permission. There's no, you know, right. uh, I don't know the what's the opposite of permission? (laughs) Restriction. Not permission. Restriction. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what it would feel like.
2: This is the best analog that I can come up with. Is what it would feel like to Montoya is that Jake had introduced his the young priest of his town. To a foreign seductress, I think that's what it would feel like. I'm not saying it's a perfect mm-hmm. analogy, but I think that's the kind of like the kind of revulsion I think would be something akin to that,
1: right? Right,
0: yeah. There's something like there is something worth preserving, worth fighting for, and you know, this is this is a small way that he can cling to something that his people have valued.
1: Right. Well, and Jake, like Jake's tearing his own life down to, to like his own, his own love, his own love for this culture, his own love as an aficionado. Like he's betraying all of that by introducing Brett. And, and she, you know, I always do what I want. Will you help me?
0: Uh, uh, you know, and this is where Cohn comes back into it. Cause in a way his, attachment to boxing, his attachment to this these old perspectives, this sort of old code, as Tim put it. He's also clinging to something
1: right.
0: Like Montoya is that is not gonna last long and he kinda knows it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. The, I, this book is so beautifully crafted because all we've we've reached this section and everything is beginning to just boil. So mm. outside, the fiesta is beginning to boil. It's like the temperature is like it's actually hot. Um, inside, everybody is reaching this point where the state of affairs between these different friends cannot remain. Right. Like it's just the, all mm. of these angles. And if there's one misstep, Especially around Brett or Robert Cohn, there's one misstep. There's going to be conflict. It's just got to happen. And it just feels like we're, we're, we have built up to something has to change, something has to be done. And it's not going to be that the friends are not going to be able to sit down and like peacefully work out their differences. It's so far past that point. Yeah.
0: Hmm.
1: Right. Right.
0: And too many of them had discovered writing, so.
1: (laughs) They are a bunch of writers, aren't they?
0: Well, we should probably uh, wrap this up, not least because my computer looks like it's going to die soon and I didn't realize it. Um, Tim, what are you looking for moving forward in the last section? We're going to finish up the book uh, for next week.
2: I want to know what's going to happen. For me, the the thing, the kind of new love triangle is Romero, Jake, and Brett. I think Robert and Mike Mm. are kind of moving a little bit to the periphery. And now this new kind of scenario that's presenting itself is Romero, Brett, and Jake. And what's going to happen? You know, what's going to happen? it feels inevitable that Romero and Brett are going to get together in some way. What happens after that? Yeah.
0: That's not what a terribly tension lead up to.
2: Yeah. So what is the, what does that tension lead up to? How's that tension resolved? I
0: hey mean, all I asked was what you were looking for. <laughs> <laughs> Heidi, what about you?
1: Um, so in the last section, the fishing section, um, which, you know, Oh, for the innocence of fishing. In the mountains, right? That um, That is the best of what, you know, if this is a book about what happens under the sun, um, that's the best of it. And here we're, we're exploring what else is possible to happen under the sun. Um, and so I would look for, um, you know, more contemplations on what it means to be human with the best and the worst. Having, ha, yeah. How about you, David?
0: Oh, I, I, I want to see how he wraps up the boxing theme
1: because
0: mm. you know he leaves these. You know, you, when I'm always reading, like when you see these themes keep coming back around, you want to kind of see what the how he how he wraps it up. Like, what's the thing that ties it all together? That, like, what's the final conclusion or final implicit? You know thing that that theme brings us to like where does it leave us because that's going to sort of tell us what the theme meant all along yeah Um, or an image or something like that so i want to see if that image keeps coming up again um honestly at some point this is a book where you're waiting for someone to throw a punch because it keeps being suggested that it's going to happen and it's like everybody's always on the verge of being about to throw a punch and you but jake's never never involved in that punch throwing and you kind of want him to be at some point yeah. um, but also is it right? I don't know, we'll find out maybe not, maybe even if he does it, it's wrong so I feel like that was one of the big things that Hemingway as he's writing this book, he's thinking about it. he's like "When is Jake going to throw? He's trying to figure out where does he have Jake throw the punch and you know uh, hmm. when does the fist fight break out? Because <laughs> hmm. everyone's kind of all, always dancing around each other and you know, everyone's on the verge of, everybody wants to throw punches at each other but when does someone do that? Cause that's like the cathartic release of, from, from uh, of much of what's going on here. Um, uh, so after mm. this book, next week, we're going to finish it and we're going to do the Q and a. So if you have questions, don't forget, you can send those questions to us, close podcast at gmail.com or on the Facebook, uh, thread. We'll post the, post that after the next week's episode. And then, uh, we are going to be beginning home by Marilyn Robinson and, uh, Conveniently enough, we will be finishing that up around the time of the launch, uh, the publication of her newest book, Jack, on September 29th. Um, So I'll get the reading schedule out for that in the next week or so. So get ready for that. Uh, As Tim mentioned earlier in the show, we have The Plays, The Thing. You guys are going to be recording right after this, right? With Sarah Jane talking about The Merchant of Venice, aka Shylock, (laughs) aka Portia. So get ready to listen to that. And... um, what else should we what else should we talk about? That's it. I guess that's it. But don't forget. you can join the conversation over on the Facebook group. You can follow us on Instagram. We are at Closereads Pods there, and uh, we also have the the uh, Daily poem, of course. So subscribe to that. If you want to leave a review wherever you're getting podcasts, click that follow button on Spotify if you want. Uh, you know, help us spread the word. We are always grateful for that. And then finally, uh, don't forget about Patreon, patreon.com slash Uh Next week, we are going to have our Crime and Punishment Q&A episode. And then a couple weeks after that, we will be diving into The Lord of the Rings, J.R. Tolkien's beloved, clearly beloved novel, uh, novels uh, among this group. So get ready for chapter one of that. I guess that about covers everything. So for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Curran. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, Happy reading.